This is Fine Rambles, number 58. So I'm a guest host this week, as I think you can tell. My name is Raspy Matt, and uh, (laughs) I apologize for Matt with the normal voice not being here, but apparently he's getting over a cold. So I am taking his place. A friend and I drove out to rural New Jersey last week, and we spent the day basically helping a friend of his build a deck. During the course of the day, we went from a pile of plywood planks and 2x4s and 4x4s to a completed deck. And there was something very wonderful or satisfying or, (laughs) you know, just look, I mean, I come from the finance world where you never see the accomplishments of anything you do. You never see the results of anything you do. And so in one day for six of us to take a pile of wood and turn it into a deck for me was pretty remarkable, especially because I really learned And again, I'm just admitting my own ignorance here. I learned how complicated it is to do even the simplest of projects. I think if you had asked me last week how hard that project would have been, I sort of would have scoffed. I would have said, it's a deck. You're just nailing pieces of wood together that are already at right angles. How hard can this be? And and the answer turned out to be quite difficult. I mean, you have to You have to put the posts into the ground just right and hold them. And then you have to use the level, you know, that old device with the little air bubble in the middle. And you have to make sure it's it's perpendicular in all three dimensions. It has to be perpendicular vertically. And then the two beams that come across and hit it have to be held perfectly in place so that they're not out of alignment. Because if any one of the different 2x4s or 4x4s are wrong, it'll ripple. It'll, it'll ripple through the entire deck, and then the whole thing will be messed up. And again, your tools aren't that precise. You know, that, that level just has a little air bubble in it. And you're just, you know, you're holding things and you're saying, okay, that's approximately correct. And then you have a nail gun and you're trying to hold the pieces of wood in place while you're, you know, this thing has enormous recoil. And again, the, the imprecision becomes cumulative. And you wouldn't even know often until the very end whether things had worked. All you would know was that you thought you had. And then later, if something wasn't flat or if two boards that were supposed to just overlap didn't, well, you were screwed because you couldn't go back and fix it. You couldn't take apart the whole goddamn deck. And it just gave me so much more respect for for work, especially this sort of uh, this sort of narrow, deep knowledge where someone builds competence in a relatively small area over years and years and years. And they get very, very good at doing something that, you know, is not science. There is definitely an art. I really respect that kind of profession, that kind of, you know, trades profession. But I think it's important for us also to recognize that competence 
breeds what's the right word it breeds it breeds a certain complacency and and that can become arrogance and it's funny in in my profession in finance there's there's an old trope which says that doctors and dentists are are easy marks they 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 often fall prey to con men they lose a lot of money in the market and and the reason for this is they're so knowledgeable and there's such high levels of expertise in their narrow <coughs> excuse me <coughs> raspy mat for the win they have so much competence and they have so much expertise in their narrow field a dentist essentially is the master of his domain day after day year after year and that makes him or her get the sense over time that he is not just master of that little area he's master of everything right he extrapolates his expertise into other fields and that is extremely dangerous it's extremely dangerous your success contains the seeds of your failure right you're complacent you don't change the world changes it evolves and in you know in my arrogance i don't change enough to keep up with the change of the world or i stop trying as hard because you know trying is really hard and everything's been working well for so long why would i put in that pain and suffering and struggle to stay at sort of the edge of my competence when when I slack off for a while, I don't see the negative results right away. There's this great line, um, rust never sleeps. Everything you see is constantly falling apart, but you don't see it falling apart from day to day. It might take weeks or years you know, it's really a decade-long process, then one day it collapses and you say, I didn't see this coming. Well, you didn't see it coming because you weren't paying enough attention over that decade, day by day by day. And, you know, the good news is the opposite's true, right? The seeds of your success lie in failure, right? Failure's this message to you. Failure's wonderful. It says, you know, pay attention here, improve here. And so you say, okay, I failed. Let me learn from that failure. Let me try again. Let me incorporate the lessons of failure. Let me pay even closer attention to what I'm supposed to be doing. How can I be more truthful and honest with myself and others so I don't drift from reality through lies and deception? Thank God, Thank God for the little failures because they keep the big failures at bay because we course correct and we don't let the rust accumulate. Getting reality right is really, really hard. Reality is really good at, at, at faking us out, <laughs> right? I, I need to remind myself of this all the time. I was thinking about this because I watched uh, the documentary on Theranos, I think Bad Blood. And I was trying to figure out how you would have seen this coming from the outside. And I think it's far more difficult than we think in retrospect. Because, you know, the cliche, hindsight is twenty twenty. It's obvious from the go when you're seeing it from the inside that 
something was rotten in the state of Denmark. But what exactly, right? So Liz Holmes was young, and so was Mark Zuckerberg. She was a dictator, but so was Steve Jobs. She had a cult of personality. Steve Jobs. She had vaporware or a shitty initial product. Well, that's the rule in the industry. I mean, Oracle, Microsoft... She had secrecy in silos. Well, I mean, half of tech has that problem. I'm kind of running out of time, but I want to talk for a minute about this great article I read recently on scurvy. Okay, so scurvy, scurvy was a big deal for centuries. And the estimates are scurvy killed 2 million men from 1500 to 1800. But by 1800, it looked like the problem had been solved. This guy, John Lind, he did one of the first clinical trials. He gave six sailors lemons, and he gave six sailors not lemons. And the six that didn't get lemon lemons got scurvy. But here's the crazy thing. We lost the knowledge that lemons cured scurvy after 1800. And there's all sorts of reasons why knowledge goes backwards. So, so one reason was they started using limes because they were cheaper, and because they could source them directly from British colonies. But, and they didn't know this, limes don't really have much vitamin C. And they took the lime juice, and they served it through copper piping, which apparently kills vitamins. And then scurvy returned. So they had a solution, and they tried to tweak the solution to make it better, and it destroyed the solution. They were so confused, they started coming up with all these other crazy theories. They said scurvy was a bacterial issue. It wasn't until 1907, and like so many of these stories, it was based on an accident. Researchers accidentally gave scurvy to guinea pigs. And guinea pigs, this is crazy, okay? So guinea pigs are the only animal that requires vitamin C other than humans, monkeys, and bats. And the experiments showed that fresh food cured the scurvy. Okay, so again... Again, you're back to where you were in like 1800. Doing A solves problem B, but we don't know why. And it wasn't until until 1932 that vitamin C was discovered. If you have a solution that's working, the first thing you do is you don't fuck with it. They had a working solution, and they moved away from it out of arrogance because they thought they knew something they didn't. Another example, a little more timely, a little more controversial, the, the anti-vaxxers. I think it's very easy to understand the anti-vaxxers approach because you've seen a crisis in science lately. You know, you have the replication crisis, physics. I mean, physics has gone down, you know, the, the, the blind alley of string theory, which isn't even science. The, uh, the progressives are corrupting biology. When you're a mother, I mean, just imagine being a mother and holding your, your tiny baby in your arms. And you've worked so hard for this child. You've suffered so much. And if you don't have the baby vaccinated, you think that there's no risk because everyone else will. And so your baby will be safe. It can be a free rider. But if you have the baby vaccinated... There's this tiny chance that the crazy people are right, and the cost is too high to bear. Your child gets autism or something. It starts to look pretty rational to try to be a free rider. 
And the danger, of course, is that everyone starts to believe this. This is the tragedy of the commons. If no one's willing to get their babies vaccinated, measles and polio are going to come back. And these are horrific diseases. My, uh, my uncle had polio, and the stories, uh, the stories my mother tells about what it is, it is like to live with polio. But that's two generations ago now. And so parents today don't viscerally understand the horror, the horror of these diseases. And so they look at their little babies, these fragile, beautiful little things, and they say, why would I run the risk? Even if it's one chance in a million, why would I run the risk? Okay, that is all I have. My throat is really starting to hurt. So I will catch you next week.